Three, two, one. Hit What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, I can't with some of these people. Put down um, your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, Would you rather? All right, trust me. Take no, my advice. Seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'm joined by best-selling author and dating expert John Berger for a conversation on online dating. We explore issues including why you should think of dating apps more like visiting the eBay marketplace than actually looking for a life partner, why offline relationships are shown to be three or four times longer lasting than online relationships, how the disproportionately high number of female relative to male college graduates affects the dating culture, why the workplace is the best place to meet someone, and what is responsible for the decline in workplace relationships over the last decade, and finally, the suitor's advantage, why whichever party makes the first move is most likely to achieve the best outcome. All that and so much more on another episode of Nervous Habits. Hey everybody, what's going on? It's another uh, rainy Monday day, Monday day, Monday afternoon, Monday morning in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm a little a little uh, sniffly today. I think I might be coming down with a cold or something. Um, and yeah, it's, it's sort of a gloomy, gloomy Monday morning as I, as I record, uh, with all you guys. So I want to start off before I even get into this week's topic and, and, um, upcoming interview by just sharing something that, that's on my mind. So people who listen to the pod know that I am particularly vigilant about phone use more than, more than I think a lot of people, uh, are. And as a result, you know, I, I I sort of try not to be on my phone more than a couple hours a day at the most. And even then, I've noticed in the last couple months with the pandemic, I'd, I'd been lying down for five minutes to check my phone at the end of the night and, you know, been on there for 45 minutes. And it's, it's, it's become, uh, it, it became so frustrating that, so I did two things. Uh, number one, I turned off all the notifications on my apps except for messaging and phone calls. And number two, I turned my uh, color on the phone to grayscale. And as a result, you guys, my phone use significantly de- declined. It went from you know three and a half hours a day a couple weeks ago to just last week. I'm I'm under an hour. I'm at like 50 minutes a day. Um. And I think it makes sense because in terms of the notifications, instead of reactively opening Twitter and email and, you know, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whenever I get a notification, I'm choosing to engage with people when I want to open my phone. I'm taking back the, that autonomy, which which I think I've, I've mentioned before. So the notifications part and then the grayscale, you know, if you think about it, um, and I, I think it might have been my, my guest last week, Dr. Austin Lim, that talked about this. But when you have the blue light coming in from the phone late at night, you know, first of all, it's 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 so visually stimulating that it's disruptive to the natural circadian rhythm, which which Austin men- mentioned. But also, it sort of entices you to keep looking at your phone because it's so um, stimulating to your central nervous system to, to just see all of the different bright colors, right? It's like going into a casino or or an arcade. And so by turning it by turning the color to grayscale, now what now when I pick up my phone, 
it looks like I'm looking at a newspaper, right? Everything's in black and white. I don't want to look at photos. I don't feel like scrolling through my news feed on Twitter uh, because it's just it's just a black and white image in a colorful world. So I'm more motivated to look at the colors in the world around me instead of the colors on my you know three by five inch electronic device. And so I really strongly recommend to all those listening that are also struggling with phone use, do those two things. Turn off your notifications and change your phone to grayscale. I promise you, I promise you it'll make a big difference. Notifications, you can just turn off, go to settings, notifications, and then go to every single app and just go off, 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 off for all the notifications. For grayscale, that's a little trickier, but you go to settings, you can do it with me right now. Settings, and then general, and then accessibility, and then accessibility shortcut at the bottom, and then hit color filters. And if you tap your home button three times, it's like Dorothy, you hit it three three times, then you can toggle grayscale on for monochromacy. Um, look, the developers make it hard, <laughs> make it hard to use that feature. Um, and I think, I think it's because they know that it makes the phone less appealing and it will make you less distracted. But you know, part of the problem with the phone is when you pick it up and you start looking at the screen, you forget that you're looking at a phone. You almost, it's almost like VR, AR technology. You feel like you're stepping into the virtual world, right? But when you turn it black and white and then you look at the phone, all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, I'm just looking at a screen. You have more of that separation between the screen world and the real world. So I only bring that up because, um, I know that a lot of people listening are struggling with, you know, even a mild form of smartphone addiction, uh, we're all, we're all, we're all, we're all dealing with it. Right. And taking that step has helped me at least, um, get some time back in my day. Think about what would you do with an extra three, three, four hours a day. And that's, I mean, that's mild. I have friends who I've, I had a buddy I worked with. I mentioned this on the pod before, but you know, one day we were at the office at five o'clock at night. I casually asked him, what's your screen time? His average was eight hours a day. I mean, it's come <laughs> So, uh, I'm not, you know, I wasn't even planning to talk about smartphone addiction in this episode, but it was on my mind. So I wanted to to sort of mention that at the outset. Now this week I am going to be talking about dating. And as you guys know, it's, it's one of my favorite topics to, to, to explore, um, mentioned, you know, one of the first episodes of the pod, my personal view on the shortcomings of meeting people online, um, sort of the, the transactional nature of those relationships and why, just meeting people in person is, is superior. Now, that being said, and I mentioned this in my conversation with today's uh, guest, John Berger, given COVID and given um, you know social distancing, a lot of people have had no choice but to you know to meet online, especially because we're in um, pods in in cocoons for for a lot of people for like the prime of your twenties when you should be out there dating, and it's been really the only alternative. So I'm very excited to share my conversation with John. Uh, this week's guest with you. John John is sort of like an expert on on dating online. He's almost like for all those baseball fans, he's almost like the the Billy Bean of <laughs> of dating apps in terms of the data, the analytics that he has to support some of the claims he makes in the interview and in his book. So John Berger is an award-winning magazine writer, a contributor to Fortune, dating expert, and the author of Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game. So the, the saber, continue the baseball metaphor, the saber metrics of dating. He was named to uh, Always On Network's list of power players in technology business media and is a former senior writer at both Fortune and Money. His work has appeared in Barron's, Bloomberg Business Week, New York Magazine, The New York Post, Time, and The Washington Post. He's a familiar face and voice on television, radio, and the lecture circuit too, having been a guest 
on ABC's Good Morning America, BBC World Service, CNBC, CNN, MSNBC, NPR, and Fox News, and a featured speaker at the Cato Institute, University of Kansas, Market Waves, and South by Southwest. And in this conversation, we discuss John's latest book, Make Your Move, The New Science of Dating and Why Women Are in Charge. It is a super interesting conversation, and you know we talk about why dating apps are difficult, not just for, for women, but for men as well. Um, I think that both genders uh, have, have unique challenges with the medium, and we sort of compare then and now, how people met 20, 25 years ago to how people met today, and whether or not people will continue to meet this way in the future. So I think that you're going to get a lot out of it, uh, whether or not you are a, an avid user of, of you know, these, these dating apps, or you're someone who's in a long-term relationship and <laughs> thankfully never has to worry about dating online. I think you're going to get a lot out of our conversation. So without further ado, my conversation with John Berger. Nervous Habits Podcast is sponsored by Skillshare. So how many times have you had a thought, maybe in the shower or on the subway? Man, it'd be it'd be nice to learn to code one day. It'd be nice to learn to, to graphic design. I'd love to, to learn how to make YouTube videos or uh, you know learn a specific program or, or web interface. But then you just don't have the time or you don't have the money, you don't have the motivation, and you don't have the, the drive to actually sign up for an in-person class. Well, Skillshare actually makes it easy to learn new skills with short lessons and hands-on projects. It's essentially the same as a pricey in-person class or workshop, but it's incredibly affordable. An annual subscription is less than $10 a month. For me, I love making videos. Ever since I was in high school, I took my first media class. Um, I, I, I love working with um, with the Adobe video editing uh, platforms, but I haven't used Premiere Pro in a long time. Um, and so in order to, to refine my skills, uh, I'm going to be taking the Learn Premiere Pro and edit a how-to video for beginners course with Haleis Narvaez. I'm excited to uh, I'm excited to hit the ground running, pretty much invest an hour and a half of time and become an expert at, at Premiere Pro. So I, I'm really pumped about that. And you can actually explore your creativity today at Skillshare.com slash Nervous Habits. And my friends at Skillshare are actually offering all my listeners a free trial of premium membership, a free 14-day trial of premium membership for my listeners by going to skillshare.com slash nervous habits. What do you have to lose? Go on there, try a new skill, and I promise you it will pay off. You don't want to get to the end of your life and say, oh man, I wish I learned this. I wish I learned that. Just take some time today, invest in learning a new skill, and you won't regret it. Skillshare.com slash nervous habits. And now back to the show. John Berger, welcome to Nervous Habits. Hey, Ricky. Thanks for having me on. John, I'm really excited to have you on here today. Uh, my listeners know that I love talking about the convergence of dating and tech. And on the third episode of my podcast, just over two years ago, I talked about why I personally despise dating apps. And we'll get into that, uh, the deficiencies with dating online in a moment. But one of the biggest issues that I talked about was the sense of option overload and the problem of having too much choice, particularly for women who are inundated with literally hundreds of matches every time they open their phone. Is that part of why you're so critical of dating apps? Yeah, there are a lot of reasons. But to your point, I, I, as a, a woman I know, divorced, recently divorced in her mid-40s, um, she signed up to Bumble like a week ago. Within 48 hours of signing up to Bumble, she had 250 potential matches on Bumble. And, and basically she, she just gave up at that point because how the heck are you supposed to sort through 250 men? I mean, it's impossible. Um, and also the, you know, the profiles are really two dimensional. There's no way you're going to get a sense of whether you're compatible with that person based on 
a photo and whether you know he's dog he's a dog person or a cat person i mean that this isn't natural and you know frequently i, I ask people okay um do you have a best friend so ricky i'm gonna ask you do you have a best friend yeah, I do. Okay. Could you imagine going on to bestfriends.com and rep <laughs> replicating the relationship that you have with your best friend just by going on an app? No, I, I mean, I <laughs> listen, <laughs> you're, you're preaching, you're preaching, the choir, right? you're preaching the choir here, John, because I, I'm with you. I think that when you have 250 potential matches on Bumble, and by the way, th that number seems low. I have friends who, who within an hour have sort of similarly hundreds of matches. <laughs> when you have that many matches, your margin for, um, your margin of error, you, you know, if, if, if you find your perfect guy or your perfect girl, but they're an inch short, or maybe their favorite comedy is a show that you're not crazy about, then you'll swipe left and onto the next person. So I just think that you're, you're far more, you're far less forgiving. You're more unforgiving on dating apps because you know there's just so many people to choose from. Well, I also think it's you're unforgiving because bottom line, you don't actually know the person, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in your human beings evolved as social animals. We, we bond through shared experiences and you know, you're a, you're a stand-up comedian. You know that people laugh louder in the company of other human beings, mm -hmm. and you know, and the triumphs are more triumphal, etc. When you're with with friends or with other people, than you are when you're when you're alone. And this is why it's not just the option overload. Um, the, the connections we make with people who we know in the real world tend to be longer lasting. Um, and if you look at the data on dating app relationships, the breakup rates are considerably higher than they are for people who meet in the real world. And I think this is why. Definitely. And, and, and I want to I, I talk about that um, in a bit in terms of comparing and contrasting the longevity and the, the depth of, of the relationships in the real world versus online. But you struck on something a moment ago. I want to make sure listeners re really, really understand. It, it sounded like you were talking about sort of the transactional nature of dating apps, the, the idea that because it's such a low commitment to swipe right and exchange a few messages and make a date, it's given rise to more instances of, of flaking and ghosting um, because it's such a low effort threshold. What do you make of that? Well, yeah, I agree. I mean, it, I mean, it feels like commerce, right? Like the, 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 like being on match in terms of the experience is not all that different from being on eBay. Um, you know, you're, you're sorting through various options and, you know, if you're buying something on walmart.com, every smart shopper knows that whatever you buy can be returned, right? Um, and the, the dating app operators themselves kind of are aware of this. And, you know, if you, if you look at the annual report of Match Group, um, you know, which is the kind of the 10,000 pound behemoth in the, in the, in the dating world, um, you know, the, the, the words, I'm going to give you a list of words that do not appear once in Match Group's annual report. And Match Group is the parent of not only Match, but Tinder and Hinge and OkCupid and a bunch of other apps as well. These are words that do not appear once in Match's uh, annual report. Married, marriage, wedding, couple, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, husband, wife. Mm -hmm. um, because these are media companies and media companies are not in the business of getting rid of their, their, their viewers and their users. And in fact, also in Match Group's annual report is this line that successful experiences drive repeat usage. Mm 
And that's exactly what you're talking about. If you have a really great experience on Tinder and you meet somebody terrific, you're going to keep going back to find somebody even more terrific because the end game is not to live happily ever after because Tinder doesn't want you to live happily ever after because they are monetizing you for subscription revenue and advertising revenue. And that's something that struck me in in reading, reading your book. Um, Whenever, and you mentioned this, whenever two members of Hinge or Tinder get together and stop using the app, that means too few are paying customers. Exactly. Um, so I think to all those listening, you sort of have to be mindful to, to John's point that this isn't a company that is invested in your well-being. This is a business, uh, much like Facebook and much like Apple monetizes your attention. You should be wary of of trusting these apps because they don't really have your best interest at heart. Well, well, look, I mean, I I, I don't want to push it too far because they're a media company, and I you know I used to work for Time Inc. when I was a a writer at Fortune magazine, and you know. Fortune magazine isn't in the business of making you rich, so you never read Fortune again. You know, like it's they're they're in the business of keeping you engaged, and I don't I don't blame the folks at Match Group or Whitney Wolf Heard, the the now billionaire founder of Bumble, for creating businesses that work for for them and for their shareholders. And and also, I I don't assume that everybody on a dating app is there to to meet a life partner. I mean, if you're just looking for a friend with benefits, a friend without benefits, a hookup, like there are all sorts of reasons to use dating apps that have nothing to do with a quest for a soulmate. So I I do want to put that out there. Um, But at the same time, most people who are on dating apps are looking for a life partner. And I I think what we're talking about is important. You have to know that, that they are not in the business of your happily ever after. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And I think you're right. You're right about it not being binary. It's not like either you're looking for a life partner or you're not interested. There are there are sort of, um, you know, shades of gray there. Uh, but you alluded to hookup culture a moment ago. And in your book, uh, Datanomics, um, you you sort of hypothesize that the emergence of hookup culture isn't so much to do with Tinder or porn, but it has to do more with lopsided uh, gender ratios. So, so can you spell that out for listeners? What, yeah. What, so, so, so th- this kind of like the que- the question I used to get and still get all the time is basically how did a middle-aged fortune magazine writer who used to write about really boring stuff like oil and gas, how did I ever start writing books about dating? Mm-hmm. And the answer was that the editorial staff at Fortune was disproportionately women. Um, but I couldn't help but notice that most of the men were either married like myself or involved in long-term relationships. Whereas the women had these, and I think that I could safely say they, the women at Fortune had more going for them dating-wise than, than <laughs> the guys did. But the women had these dating stories and dating histories that really made no sense to me. I mean, guys who would kind of bail on them after a date or two, um, ghost them. Some of them claim to never get asked out at all. And so, so the the origin of Datanomics, my first book, was kind of exploring why dating had become so much harder for women, particularly educated professional women, than for men. And where I ended up with the research is looking at um, 
at sex ratios among college graduates. So for the past 25 years or so, we've, we've essentially had one third more women than men graduate from college in the US. Hmm. And it's actually not just the US, it's really every Western country. If, you, if we were in Canada or the UK or France, it's, it's a similar story. Um, and what you've, what the research on sex ratios show is that the mating culture um, changes depending upon the prevailing sex ratio. So when men are in oversupply, which is what you find in places like China, the women have more of an upper hand and the men have to compete and the culture is kind of more monogamous. When men are the ones in undersupply, um, it's the opposite. The, you know, the, the culture is more sexualized and less monogamous. And to your point, you know, what, you know, what we see, what we describe here as the hookup culture is basically just a byproduct of a less monogamous, more sexualized culture. So I look, I I I, I actually believe um, the data underlying your your thesis here and and I, I but but I also want to acknowledge I'm sure listeners are sort of you know shaking their head a little bit when you talk about men being in undersupply and and women you know w- women being um sort of more uh, you know there'd be more w- women college graduates because if you open up tinder john or you open up any of these apps it's mostly men out there that's sort of the reason why you know these women have hundreds of matches because there's just so many guys on these dating platforms so how can it be that yeah but oh, i mean look i mean we I mean, tinder is not the real world uh, I, as you know i mean men aren't carefully scrolling through the profiles of every woman on bumble or tinder i mean they're just swiping right on everything uh, which is why it's so hard for women to make an informed an informed judgment about all the potential matches they have. Um, but you know, but, but, but let's talk about how I know or why I'm so convinced that these prevailing sex ratios have an impact on behavior. And in datanomics, one of the ways I, I explored this was using college campuses as case studies. So, and it, it's not exact, but in general, college campuses kind of act as self-contained dating pools. Like if you're, if you're a student at Connecticut College, you're probably mainly dating other students at Connecticut College. You know, so it's, I mean, in a big city like Boston or New York, there, it might, there might be some, you know, BC kids dating the, you know, the Northeastern kids in Boston, but, but in general, college campuses are kind of self-contained when it comes to dating. So one of the things I did in datanomics was rank 40 well-known public and private colleges by their sex ratios, and then pair that data with how students describe the dating culture at their schools. And the, the, the dating culture information came from, came courtesy of, of uh, niche.com, which is kind of a college review website. Like if you're a high school senior applying to colleges and you wanna know what the, what the math program is like or what the cafeteria food is like, or in this case, what the dating culture is like, you can log on there and hear what current students you know, said about their, about their schools. So in, in datanomics, I start with the, you know, like I, I begin with the schools, they're more male than female. And, and even though the, the average ratio these days in the college campus is about 
5743, which is four women for every three men. I mean, there obviously is some variation from school to school. So let's start with, uh, with RPI in upstate New York, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is 28% female, 72% male. Here's how kids describe the dating culture at RPI. More people are involved in relationships. Girls seem to become stuck up because they are in such a minority. They can afford to be uh, fairly choosy. Um, Caltech in, in Pasadena, California. And I, I have a little, you know, remind me in a moment, I can tell you a funny story about Caltech. But here, you know, Caltech is 41% is women, 59% men. Here's the quote about dating. Students here tend not to date, but have relationships. Breakups are rare. And many couples get married after Caltech. Hmm. Now, just so you know, it's not just the tech schools, uh, even like schools that are 50-50, that are more mainstream, um, you find that the dating culture is more traditional. Tufts University in, Medford, in suburban, Mass suburban Boston, Tufts is 50-50. Hmm. Here's the comment. Halfway through sophomore year, people begin to pair off and generally stay paired off through junior and senior year. University of Miami, reputation is this huge party school in the, you know, in the South. University of Miami is pretty close to 50-50. It's 52% women, 48% men. Here's the comment about University of Miami. Random hookups are common in the beginning, but after a few months or a year, relationships take over. So let's, let's kind of park that and think about, okay, that's what how students describe dating at the 50-50 schools or the mostly male schools. And let's compare that to the schools that are disproportionately female. I'll start with um, New York University in New York. New York is 60-40, uh, which is works out to three women for every, or 60% female, which is three women for every two men. Mm -hmm. Here's the comment. Guys take advantage of the male to female ratio. Most have no plans of settling into a long-term relationship. Rollins College, which is a small liberal arts school in Florida, uh, also 60-40s, you know, three women for every two men. At Rollins, commitment-free hookups are common and quite accepted. Boston University in Boston, where one of my sons is, is, is right now, um, BU is 62% female, 38% male. Again, wow. again, three women for every two men. Wow. Here's the comment. Freshman year is a sexual explosion. There are girls to go around and around again. The last one, and I, I have a, if you want to follow up on this one, I have, I have more to say. Sarah Lawrence College, which used to be an all-girls school. It's in suburban New York. Um, it's now 75% female, 25% male, which according to my math is three women for every one man, right? Am yep, I, your math track. That right? Yep. yep. Here's the comment about Sarah Lawrence. The girls complain about loneliness. The guys get more than they can handle and mindless one night stands are rampant. So you can see if, if you use these college campuses as case studies, you can see how the dating culture you know, changes depending upon the prevailing sex ratios. 
John, uh, thanks. Thanks for sharing all, all that, all, all that data. Uh, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. I wonder, so most of the schools that you mentioned were sort of the elite public and private schools in the country. Would, would, um, would you, like, would you like, a, like a more regular one? I'll give you Well, I'm just sort of wondering for sort of the, the, you know, middle of the road public schools, or even for community colleges, are the ratios that distorted? Cause I can't imagine three to one at Sarah Lawrence is, you know, no, no, no. Yes, yeah, yeah. Sarah Lawrence, no doubt, is an extreme case. Right. But University of Georgia, state mm-hmm. school in you know Athens, Georgia. University of Georgia is sixty-two percent women, thirty-eight percent men, three women for every two men. Wow. The comment about dating there is hookups occur rampantly at the bar scene downtown. The walk of shame is pretty common for many students. So big state school, you know, it's not, we're not just talking about um, small liberal arts schools. Got you. No, I, I so, so I definitely, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. I think, I think this, this lopsided gender ratio um, is, is a significant component of, of this, you know, this hookup culture that's, that's common across the country. Um, another sort of another um, component of online dating that you mentioned in your book, which I, you know, I certainly agreed with is the idea that online dating has turned dating from a mysterious adventure into a daily chore. So Tinder users spent 90 minutes a day on the app before COVID uh, by comparison, 30 minutes uh, a day on Instagram were average. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like rather than being an exciting recreation activity, Tinder has become something you do after you brush your teeth before you make your coffee in the morning. What, what impact do you think this has on, on dating and the dating landscape? I, I mean, the, I mean, it just to be, so 90 minutes a day works out to about, 10, 11 hours a week. And mm. that doesn't even include the actual dates. Yeah. So, so um, you know, it, sometimes when I talk about meeting people in the real world, people are like, oh, that sounds like a lot of work. And I'm like, well, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're spe- you know, like you're, you know, you're, you're spending 10, 11 hours a week. I think the numbers are even higher for, for, for Gen Z than they are for the average population. So you're spending that much time on the dating apps separate from the actual dates. Um, what could be more of a time suck than that? As unpleasant as you find it as a guy, I don't think men realize how exponentially more unpleasant it is for women. I mean, there was a Pew Research survey last year um, uh, that of young women, I think, 35 and under women on dating apps, something like 55 or 56% of women on dating apps considered online dating unsafe. Wow. 20% of them, or, you know, maybe it was, actually it was 19% of them have been threatened with physical violence while on the dating app. So if there was some singles bar, you know, where, one out of every five women were being threatened with violence. I mean, who would go back? And, and I kind of feel like there's, there's, there's so much, I mean, the, like the, the high breakup rates, and we can talk about that. I mean, the, the, these online relationships do have much higher breakup rates than traditional ways of, of meeting. But I, you could almost live with that if there wasn't this like danger factor that, that women in particular you know, face on, on dating apps. Um, I mean, every, every, not every, but the, the majority of women who are going out on a first date on a dating app, remember every first date on a dating app is a first date with a, is a blind date with a complete stranger. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and every woman I've interviewed, and I'm sure that there are exceptions out there, but I'm just going to go with, with, with people I've talked to. The experience of a first day, first online date for a woman starts with basically a day of fact checking, googling him to death to make sure that you know Robert, the handsome fund manager, isn't actually Billy Bob, the ex-con. Hmm. Um, you know, trying to figure out if he is what he what he says he is, and then on the day of the date creating this like safety plan or escape plan in which you tell your roommate or your mom or your sister where you're going to be, um, you know, just in case the guy turns out to be a madman. And I, I don't, this isn't really, there's a woman I interviewed for, for Make Your Move who, um, she had this like really clever turn of phrase. She, um, she described online dating to me as a doubter's game. And the reason she said this is because she had had so many experiences of men lying to her on dating apps that she started to spend first dates trying to find all the holes in their stories. Um, You know, whether they, you know, they said they weren't married, they were, they said they were looking for a relationship, they just wanted to, you know, get laid. Um, You know, they they said they had spent five five years in the Air Force, they hadn't. and she would try to like pick all the holes in their stories, which I understand from a safety perspective and a self-protection standpoint. But obviously that's not conducive to falling in like or falling in love. And it certainly doesn't lead to a lot of second dates. Yeah. And, and uh, on that point about safety for women, I know some apps have sort of integrated third party software where you where it can like track your location or you can share, you know, your, share your data with a friend. Um, and I do think that as, as we move forward, that's something that, that you're going to see more and, you know, more of, because to your point, a lot of, a lot of women have to sort of take precautions before they meet, meet a guy. And, and if dating apps are going to become more prevalent, we're going to have to deal with that issue. Right. But, but the, the, the point I really emphasize and make your move is it, is that, the anxiety level that some singles bring to a first date, um, it actually affect, can affect the relationship outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could have two people who are perfectly compatible. Um, and if they met at work or at church or something like that, that, that they, they might hit it off amazingly. But if they're approaching the first date with this anxiety level or skepticism, um, that that affects the relationship outcome. And there's all this science that I, I dig into and make your move in which I, in which I show how the way we meet can actually impact how the relationship plays out. And the, the, these kind of real world stories that people have about meeting in college or you know, meeting um, at the dog park or uh, meeting through, you know, meeting at a party through friends. The, these stories aren't just stories. They become kind of um, the mortar for successful relationships. These stories that people like to tell and retell. And not only do the couples themselves become invested in them, but the people around them become like, like Ricky, how did your parents meet? You know, it's funny. I, I don't even know the, the the full story, but I I think they got uh, introduced by 
a mutual friend or something set them up for coffee, something like do, that. Do, do they tell this, that story every once in a while? My dad told it to me, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so, so the, these stories that we, I mean, this is, you know, I, I should have asked you off air if, if there was a great story. These how we met stories aren't just, you know, like, Thanksgiving entertainment. They, they, they actually have an impact on, on how connected we feel to each other. I mean, you mentioned you, you were married, right? I'm married, yeah. So how, how did you meet your wife? So, so we, so we met in college. Um, and I can't say that like the moment we met, like there was an epiphany. But we, we did know each other for a couple of years before we actually started dating. And um, I think like... I mean, I'm not talking about myself necessarily, but just think about how far ahead of the game two people who knew each other for two years are, who then go on a first date, how far ahead of the game they are than two complete strangers who meet on match. Mm, definitely. You have that, <clears throat> excuse me, you have that foundation of, of friendship and, and, you know, you don't have to sort of go through all the first date interview questions of, all right, how many siblings do you have? Let me write that on my clipboard. Right. How, you know, how many uh, pets do you have? I, and it's interesting. I'm, I'm, this is a nice segue to the next thing I wanted to discuss with you, which is sort of the shift uh, 25 years ago to now with how people are meeting. I actually dug up some, some stats uh, from Statista and surveys from Stanford, uh, Stanford University that looked at where people met their spouses 25 years ago and today. So, so, so listen to this. You've probably um, heard these numbers, but in 1995, 15% of people met their spouses through family, 19% through school or college, 19% through work, 19% at a bar or restaurant, 33% through friends, and 2% online. And today, so 26 years later, 7% of people meet their spouses through family, 9% through school or college, 11% through work, 27% at a bar or restaurant, 20% through friends, and 39% online. Are yeah, these numbers surprising? No, they aren't surprising at all. Those come courtesy of Michael Rosenfeld, who is widely considered to be you know, one of the leading experts on how we date. And, and he's considered to be a um, kind of a, an advocate of online dating. Um, my counter argument is, okay, yes, I, I think there's no, you know, those numbers are absolutely correct. But um, look at the unhappiness level with dating. I mean, the, according to that Pew Research study I, I quoted before, a majority of daters say dating is much harder now than it was 10 years ago. Hmm. And I also like, you know, Rosenfeld, um, Michael Rosenfeld, the Stanford professor who um, put out those numbers that you, you just um, shared with, with your audience. Uh, I mean, he, again, he's, you know, he's on record saying that, that um, online dating is essentially a net positive for, um, you know, uh, for singles. Um, but I, I just wanna, so, so buried in the index of one of his studies is a, he, he claims that breakup rates are not much influenced by how couples meet. And, and I guess that this is one of these things where it really depends on how you define not much. So according to Rosenfeld, again, he's the one who put out those numbers that you shared. The one year breakup rate for couples who meet on dating apps is 16%. For couples who meet through friends or family, it's 9%. If you meet as neighbors, it's 8%. If you meet as coworkers, which is my personal favorite way for people to meet, it's 
You meet in college, it's also 6%. You meet in grade school, which is actually how my literary agent met her husband, it's 5%. <laughs> meet, meet in a house of, wor house of worship, it's 1%. So yeah, I, I, I get the fact that that um, that Professor Rosenfeld is sort of you know saying, oh yeah, online dating is great. Look how many people are meeting each other through dating apps. But I'm more interested in the outcome of these relationships and why it is that so many singles say dating is so much harder now than it was 10 years ago. So I, I, I want to play devil's advocate. I, you know, something I like to do on the podcast is, is sort of present um, the opposing views. I'm Hit sure me with are, your best shot, Ricky. <laughs> I'm sure there are people listening who are thinking, John, why does it matter how these people met? Right. Like like at the end of the day, if you find your soulmate on a dating app, how is it different than finding your soulmate at a house of worship or, or from a neighbor or a friend? Does, does it really matter that much? So I, I'm not in this to diminish the relationships of people who met online. And I, and I know that, that there are plenty of couples out there who are in love and have happy relationships, happy families. And, and I'm, not, I'm not in this to delegitimize their relationships. What I'm saying is it's harder. Um, it, it's harder to, to meet somebody and to find a deep connection with somebody on a dating app than it is if you meet through friends or family or at work or in other real world scenarios. And, you know, and as I said before, there, there's, there's science behind this. There's a, there's a study that I, I quote in the book. Was it um, Pace University study? Well, there's that one as well, but, but yeah, the, the, the Pace study shows that, that, um, Essentially, I, I think that, that couples who meet on, on dating apps are like one third or half as likely to marry as, as couples who meet in the real world. But, but, but let's, you know, let's, um, let's back away from that one for a second. Um, you know, th there's another study which shows that, that it, it's not even about marriage. It, it just takes some, uh, uh, it paired up um, men and women in real life environments who are meeting for the first time and the same number of people who are meeting online for the first time. Mm. And it turns out that the couples who meet for the first time in the real world are 25% more likely to report feelings of closeness than couples who met initially on an app. Um, they're about 15% more likely to report perceived similarity, which is a, which is a, what psychologists would tell you is a hugely important marker when it comes to interpersonal compatibility. So it's like 15% more likely to report in, you know, um, perceived similarity. So it, it's not just the marriage rate. It's just that the, the, the way people connect with other human beings, they're more likely to feel close to somebody they meet in the real world than they are somebody who they meet on an app. There's also like uh, psychological uh, data backing that up too. I think this was from your book, but I jotted it down uh, that a recent study in the journal Memory found that happy couples often share an unspoken agreement on the significant moment, uh, on the significance of the moment when they met because it can anchor their story and reflect the current and future hopes of a relationship, sort yeah. of like like what we're saying when you introduce yourself, uh, you know, your girlfriend to your friends or your family 
the first question that everyone asks is how did you meet? And if you have a story or, you know, or, or there's some sort of connection to like we're talking about to friends or to work, all of a sudden that's the anchor to, to the entire relationship. Yes. Um, you know, there, I, I was, you know, I'm, I've been particularly active on Twitter the past few months trying to promote the book. And I was talking about this on Twitter maybe a month or so ago. And a guy wrote into me with this really wonderful story. He, he's in Seattle and he has his wife and kids. They live in Seattle. And he had this wonderful story about being on like a commuter ferry in the Seattle area, you know, like you know, going from one island to another and um, you know, seeing his future wife there and just feeling compelled to say hello and as you can imagine like you know meeting on a ferry in you know in the Puget Sound um, on this beautiful summer day it, it's the story that they tell the kids that the friends all know and there's this like magic um like fate almost to the story that everybody becomes more invested in but as we were talking about before uh, kind of mechanically sorting through a hundred potential matches on a dating app does not have the same level of magic. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. So, so a moment ago, you had mentioned uh, that you think one of the best places to meet is, is the workplace. But in the book, you talk a lot about how uh, what we're seeing in 2021 is the decline in workplace relationships. So how does that factor in? You would think that that as the gender ratios in the workplace become more balanced, like versus 30 years ago, you would think that there would be more opportunities for couples to get together just because of the, the, the gender balance. But mm -hmm. that's not the case. I mean, the you know, the, the Michael Rosenfeld data that you shared earlier shows that the percentage of couples who meet at work has declined over the past, I think, 10, 15 years from 20% to about 10%. Um, and the question is why? And, and some of it probably has to do with the rise of online dating. But I, I suspect much more of it has to do with um, the complications surrounding workplace dating, complications that have kind of been brought into focus by the Me Too movement, but I actually think pre-existed the, the Me Too movement as well. So I mean, if you look at the data, 30% um, of, of couples who meet in the workplace end up marrying. That, that is a huge percentage, huge. And I would argue this is why I believe that the workplace is such an ideal place to meet somebody. And, and you don't need a degree in psychology or relationship science to understand why the workplace is so conducive to falling in like or falling in love. And that's because you already know the person. Mm -hmm. Like if you're spending nine, 10, 11 hours a day with somebody, you already have a sense of their values, of their sense of humor, of their, their story, of their background. Um, it, if somebody is kind and um, funny in the workplace, they're probably gonna be kind and funny in a relationship. Right. If somebody is duplicitous um, or cruel in the workplace, I guarantee you they're gonna be the exact same way in a relationship. So, you know, seeing people in action, so to speak, nine, 10, 11 hours a day teaches you so much more about who that person is than trading carefully 
worded text messages over an app and then spending an awkward date over sushi. Um, <laughs> so, 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 so this is my argument, but I, I think, you know, what you're driving at is that in this post me too world, it's way more complicated. And I agree that it is more complicated. So I think singles who want to date at work just need to be smarter about it. You know, I, I actually, so, so I, I agree with uh, with what you're saying about workplace relationships being more conducive to stronger outcomes. But I, I actually think part of it, John, I don't know if you agree, it has to do with timing. You know, I'd imagine that if someone is a college graduate in their early mid twenties or maybe postgraduate and they're working full time, they're probably more ready to settle down with someone that they meet from work than say two people who meet when they're in their late teens or even if they're divorced later on on, on a dating app. I, I, I don't know, at least in terms of uh, my opinion, I think timing is an element as well. Yeah, no, I, I think there's something to that. Um, that makes sense. So you also mentioned in the book uh, an interesting study out of the University of Copenhagen that found that men are more likely than women to say yes when asked on first dates, and also that men are three times more likely to make uh, the first move. But in preference, a majority of these same men wanted women to make the first move. So, so, so what's going on there? So, so I, mean, I mean, a big part of Make Your Move, my, my new book, is kind of pushing back on, the, on this notion that's been um, put out there for the, over the past 20, 30 years by, um, you know, like this cottage industry of, of dating gurus and dating experts who, you know, books like The Rules or Ignore the Guy, Get the Guy. And in underlying um, all these books and all this traditional dating advice is this notion that, um, uh, that, that, that if you seem too interested in a man, he will become less interested in you. And that kind of the... Um, the, the, the male role in mating is to chase and pursue and the female role in dating and mating is to be nothing more than a passive filter of male advances. Um, and, and you know if, and if you read books like the rules and you know there are all these countless copycats of, of, of the rules um, the, the, the underlying message is basically not interested means keep trying. It's this message that, that these authors want young women to send to men, believing that a man can't actually be happy with a woman unless, um, unless he kind of has to convince her uh, you know, to like him. But like, think about how that messaging plays out in the post Me Too Era, and you, you're younger than me. I, I'm sure you'll have a, a more informed opinion that, that, that like nowadays, I mean, men may not be learning the lessons of Me Too fast enough, uh, you know, but I think most young men or most men in general now realize that if a woman seems disinterested, um, the correct response is not to assume she's playing hard to get. Mm -hmm. The correct response is to leave her alone. And, and this is why I believe it's so advantageous for women to make the first move in today's dating environment.
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that men today have to be especially attentive to implicit and explicit uh, signals about a woman's level of comfort and consent. To your point, if, if a, a woman is telling you no or if her body language is indicating that she's not interested, that's not a sign that she's playing a game and she wants right. you to push harder. That means that you should probably you know, leave her alone and back off. Right. Um, and men, men need to, as you said, need to be learning these lessons earlier on. Uh, so something else th that I enjoyed about your book, this was actually probably my favorite part was when you talked about the great love debate, the social experiment done <laughs> yeah. at the comedy show. Do you want to explain, um, to, to listeners what, what that was, what that was like? Yeah. Yeah. So, so my, I have a friend, Brian Howie, who, um, he does this kind of traveling, I would describe it as a comedy show, but he would probably, you know, uh, he would say it's not exactly a comedy show. But what it is, it's like a, it's a lighthearted town hall on the state of, of romance and dating. And th there's a comedic aspect to it. And, and he acts as kind of a host MC. And um, he kind of uh, navigates or, you know, kind of acts as a, as a, um, a middleman between a panel of dating experts who are on the stage and I've been on the stage for six of these shows and then the people in the audience and you know the the the, the question the, the underlying question that he's trying to answer in these shows is basically why is dating so hard and how do we make dating easier? Um, and, and he kind of he, he navigates this discussion with a lot of humor and a lot of like um, a lot of jokes and things like that. Um, but one of the staples of every great love debate is the social experiment he does in which he he pulls a guy from the audience who claims he has game and a woman from the audience who claims she's approachable and then tells them to pretend that they're in line, in line at Starbucks and his job is to pick her up and it's basically two minutes on the clock go and um like I said, I've been on the stage for six of these shows and three of the six times, the guy ended up touching the woman in, in order to get her attention. And, and, I mean, he wasn't grabbing her butt, but he was like, you know, putting his arm on his shoulder, her shoulder or her back or her hand, just as kind of a way of getting her attention. And Brian does a kind of a postmortem on on this, you know, after you know, after uh, after the role playing, and I'll say that the the feedback on the touching from women is exactly the same every time. One third of the women hate it and consider it harassment. One third of the women don't really mind it, and one third of the women say they would only be okay with the guy touching her if he was cute, and and I think this kind of gets to. I mean, I mean, the women, you know, one of the themes of the great love debate and the women who, who, um, who raise their hand and talk is that they want men to be more direct about expressing romantic interest. And I, I get that desire, but if a lot of you know, men are like, uh, we're still trying to figure out what's okay and what's not okay. So to expect men to be assertive in today's environment in, the, in a way that maybe their dads were 20, 30, 40 years ago, I just don't think it's realistic. Really interesting visual for for listeners, you know, trying to imagine what uh, what John just described. Ima you know, imagine you're in Starbucks as a man 
um, and you just have to approach a woman and, and I guess get, get her phone number. Uh, it sounds just your depiction of it, putting aside all of the, the touching, um, which, which I think is, is a little problematic. It sounds very cringe inducing in terms yes. of men not knowing what to say. I mean, in terms of just yeah. like the verbal aspect of it, you know, did any man get creative or crafty with how he introduced himself? Or was it just like, hi, my name's, you know, my name's Bob. How's it going? Like, like you know, did you, what did you, what did you see? As yeah, as I mean, I would say the majority of these interactions were, as you said, cringe inducing. Yeah. And, and I will say that the, the last show I did was in 2019 which was after me too mm -hmm. and it was so awkward it kind of it, it, the whole the whole experiment felt like cruel and unusual because the guy um the the guy was this really tall muscular guy and the woman who was picked was very small and petite mm -hmm. and just the kind of the visual of it i think like like it, he knew what it looked like and he was like really i mean you could uh. see him stepping away from her because the whole idea of getting too physically close him is just like you know you know looked like looked like a football player versus her this you know 5 foot 100 pound woman um I think he was just very fearful of of doing or saying the wrong thing. Definitely, yeah. You, I mean, you have to be mindful of of sort of the the power dynamics and perception and tone and things like that. So I have uh, sort of along these lines, my own little theory that, that I that I talked about on the podcast in one of the earlier episodes, and it's the idea that I think that men in 2021 have lost the ability to approach women in real life. And I think part of it is because of all of these dating apps and screens have impaired our social functioning to the extent that people just don't know, men in particular, but really all genders, don't know how to start a conversation, don't know how to make eye contact, don't know how to actually, you know, respond spontaneously instead of having everything written out for them and, and being able to calculate. Uh, do you agree with that? Oh, I, I agree hundred percent, but I will say it's not just men. I think, I think all, I, I, I'm going to sound like one of these like old people complaining about kids these days, but you know, but, but kids these days really don't know how to make small talk. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Brian Howie, the, the host of the, um, the great love debate, he, he loves to tell the story about a woman who came to one of his shows um, and was telling him about a, guy she met on a uber ride that she was sharing mm -hmm. and she told him she couldn't wait for him to get out of the car so she could find him on tinder yikes <laughs> and, and then there's another story i tell in the book um and i know both of these stories are picking on the women but i, I know that you could find you know 10 stories about men that are equally equally amusing. Uh, but there's a story I tell in the book about a, a tweet that went viral in October 2019. And it was this woman, Sarah, mm -hmm. who um, she was kind of smitten with this really good looking guy who was sitting behind her at a football game. And instead of just turning around and making small talk with him, Sarah figured that the best way to meet him would be tweeting out a selfie with the guy in the background. And her caption was, everyone help me find this man I saw at the football game. I want to go out on a date with him. <laughs> I mean, some people would argue that's clever, right? I, I, I mean, to, to me, it's moronic. I mean, the idea that you could have just turned around and made a real life connection with another human being, um, as opposed to exposing yourself to ridicule on Twitter, which is what happened in this case. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, w why not just take a chance and, um, 
and it doesn't even have to be with a stranger. I mean, I, I was, I, I have a, I have a friend who, um, who's a college professor, an English professor at Rollins College in Florida. Um, and she read an advanced review copy of Make Your Move. And she actually, she teaches a life skills class for graduating seniors. Rollins has this, what I think is a really smart program that requires all graduating seniors to take this life skills class that covers everything from like, personal finance to real estate to relationships you know it's basically like an adulting 101 class hmm. and and she had me talk to the class about 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 dating and particularly about my misgivings about online dating and you know I went through with the class like all these things that you and I have just talked about and at the end of the class um, a young woman raised her hand and you know there were we were doing this on zoom and there were like 30 kids in the class and it, like 30 boxes on the screen and she um she asked me okay i get what you're saying but how the heck am i supposed to meet somebody if not through a dating app right and i said okay well let's i'm going to ask a question and i see all 30 boxes on the screen i, I want to see a show of hands so the question i asked was okay um how many of you have somebody you already know and like from the real world who's single whom you've ever wondered about dating. 30 kids in the class, 30 hands went up. So I'm like, all right, well, you already, you're like almost halfway there. You already have somebody you know and like who you've thought about dating. Why would you start from zero with a complete stranger on an app when you could just ask out that person you already know and like? It's fear. It's, it's, John, it's just, it's really fear. It's fear of rejection. And I think this also gets back to, to, to the point from earlier about how people, you know, can't, uh, like, like the woman Sarah at the football game with, yeah. with the selfie, people can't, <laughs> you know, look someone in the eye and, and be vulnerable. And I think the reason why, and this is something I talk again and again about on the pod is these screens that, you know, are, that we use every day are sort of, like a security blanket for us. They, they protect us from being vulnerable and, and they protect us from, from getting hurt. And as a result, you know, you're seeing the really the decay of person to person interaction. Uh, and it's, it's scary because you mentioned, you know, your friend who met uh, your literary agent, met her husband in grade school and, you know, you, you knew your wife and my dad got introduced to, to my, my mother. And it's like, I don't think that's, it's, you know, right. we're going to have that anymore without the screens. Well, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to push back and and bring back old old fashioned dating. Uh, mm -hmm. But to your point, I, I agree with you a thousand percent about the vulnerability thing. And I and I believe I, I do think there is this this next level fear of awkwardness with your generation. Mm -hmm. That I mean, obviously, like nobody likes rejection and nobody likes awkwardness. But just from my perspective, and feel free to tell me I'm wrong, it, it feels like it's, it, it's, it's a next level thing with millennials and definitely with, with Gen Z, that there's this fear of doing anything awkward. Um, and I, I mean, they, if you, I'm guessing based on the way you're talking that you've read Brene Brown's book, um, Daring Greatly. She's, um, she, she did the, the TED Talk on vulnerability, right? Right, right, right. right, right yeah, 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 no, I know exactly who she is. And I read okay, so, so yeah. she has this line, and it, this might be verbatim, but if not, it's close. And I think she says that, that um, vulnerability is weakness in me 
and courage in you. And her point is that, that when we make ourselves emotionally vulnerable, we perceive this as weakness. We don't realize that the person on the receiving end perceives this with admiration and perceives you as being courageous. And um, particularly, and this is especially true in a dating scenario, and I don't, I don't think singles realize um, how authentic a reaction you are going to get if you walk up to somebody you know and, and you say, you know what, um, Ricky, I've always liked you. I've always felt really comfortable about, you know, about being with you. Would you like to go out on a date with me on Friday night? Mm. You are not going to react in a way in which you say she's just looking for a hookup, mm -hmm. right? Right. I mean, you're not. I mean, no, you are. Yeah. You know, whereas if she said to you, "Hey, Ricky, you know, let's go grab coffee," that, that, that who knows what that means. But mm -hmm. but if you, the more you put yourself out there, the more authentic a reaction you're going to get um, back at you. So something you said at the at the beginning of your response uh, resonated with me. What you said about my generation are, or you know millennials, Gen Z are particularly feel fearful about awkwardness. I think there's something to that. I think that because and 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 if I can sort of surmise why that is, I think because of social media and how all of us have become very like not almost like a narcissistic and, and self-interested and, and obsessed with our idea of self, people are hyper aware at all times of how they're perceived, right? We're always looking at our, our cell phone camera. We're looking at how we look on the, on the um, reflection in the mirror. And as a result, you're very vigilant at how your words and your actions look to another person. As a result, you're, you're fearful at all times that you don't, that you're not with it, that you're not, um, you know, that you're going to be perceived as lesser for a man, you know, maybe clumsy, or like you said, not having game for a woman, maybe you're, you're, you know, you're not uh, competent uh, socially or romantically. And I think that it, it all stems from our use of, of these, these social media interfaces. And we're just so like hyper attuned to how we're perceived all the time. I mean, is it also that, that if you, ask out a woman at work or a neighbor and it goes south you're worried it's going to be splashed all over social media i i, I that might be a component as well um for sure yeah i i, I don't I, I don't you would have a much better handle than me on the why but but i i do get the sense that that young singles these days are their fear of awkwardness gets in the way of of romantic happiness for sure. No, no, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, something else you say in your book, which I found pretty funny, you mentioned that you think men are morons. And one of the, the many, <laughs> one of the many anecdotes you used to support that, John, is that you were personally coming home from a college party when a woman in your dorm hit the stop button on the elevator with just the two of you in it. She claimed the elevator was going too fast. And you suggested that you take the stairs. Take the stairs and yeah. in the book, you say that that was a missed signal. But John, maybe that when the story took place 10, 15 years ago, that was a mixed signal. I think in today's climate, you might have to be willing to miss some signals just to take the, the woman at their word, right? Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And this is why I think women, women who are willing to make the first move have such an advantage. And the, you know, the, the heart and soul of Make Your Move are all these stories that women told me about taking a chance, making a first move with men. And all these kind of fantastic love stories um, only happened because she took a chance. The, the guys in many cases were as oblivious as I was in the elevator. Mm. Um, 
and you know, so these these whole lives together only happened because the woman took a chance. But just to be fair to to men here. Um... I'd argue that it's not a uniquely male problem. I mean, in the book, you point out that both men and women are bad at detecting when they're being flirted with. So yeah. like in the University of Kansas experiment, when single-aged uh, college heterosexual men were tasked with flirting with female participants, only 18% of women knew when the men were flirting compared to 36% of men who knew when the women were flirting. Yeah, so, yeah. so obviously if flirting worked, and if, if flirting communicated romantic interest clearly, um, it, it, the flirtation would suffice as a first move because nobody would actually be worried about being rejected or there would be a low risk of rejection. But yeah, the, you know, that study and others show that um, human beings are really bad at detecting whether or not we're being flirted with, which is why people who are willing to make a clear first move have such an advantage um, when it comes to dating. And, and this is what I call suitor's advantage, mm. you know, in the book. The only dating strategy to ever win a Nobel prize. <laughs> Do you yes, want to flush so, that out? Yeah. So, you know, to be fair, it, it wasn't, um, yeah. So, so this wasn't a, a, this wasn't all about dating. Um, but um, in, 2012 American economists Alvin Roth and Lloyd Shapley won the Nobel Prize for Economics for their work in an, uh, a field of research known as stable marriage or, or stable matching. And you know, there's a nice summary of their work on the Nobel website, but the kind of dumbed down version is that, that when it comes to, to traditional forms of matching, whether it's dating, hiring, school admissions, you know, you know, stuff like that, the party that initiates the match typically achieves a better outcome than the party on the receiving end. Hmm. And in Shapley, in the original thought experience, experiment that, um, that Lloyd Shapley created, um, he, you know, he, he had this scenario in which there were 10 women and 10 men who all wanted to get, to get married, mm -hmm. um, but only one sex could propose. So in this scenario, the men kind of ranked the women by their first choice to their last choice, and the women ranked the men first choice to last choice. And then, but because only the, you know, so the man, the, the process would start out with the man proposing to his first choice woman. And if he was her first choice, they could kind of plan the wedding and they're kind of, you know, they're pulled out of the game, so to speak. Um, but if he was ranked lower on, on the list, um, she would kind of keep him on a string and then wait for the next round of the game in which men would then, you know, propose to the next woman on their list. And this, in this kind of, I don't want to get, too deep in the weeds, but 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 this progressed out until until everybody had a match. And what what these Nobel laureates found is that whichever party, in this case the men, um, you know, uh, initiated the match. In other words, did the proposing. The, the men ended up on average with higher ranked women than the women did with the men. Does that make sense? I, it's it's like so so I so I want to make sure listeners yeah. can get the gist of what you're saying. It, the suitor's advantage says that whoever 
is it makes the first move or whoever initiates yeah be, because well, look, look 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 here's a here's an easier way to to think about it um a woman who makes the first move with her first choice guy mm-hmm. at least she has a chance with him right? right um whereas the woman who kind of sits back and waits um and flirts and tries to kind of communicate indirectly that she has an interest in her first choice guy there is zero guarantee that he will realize that um that she's interested in him Mm. and this is why it's just this this act of 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 at least having a chance with your first choice that leads to what i call suitor's advantage Got you. Got you. I, I, I think that makes sense. And, and uh, it's applicable, not just in the dating context, yeah, um, exactly. Yep. Yeah, in you're e- right. economics and, and in business and entrepreneurship and friendships, it, it, as the, the name says, suitors advantage being, being the one to actually. Yeah. And, you know, and, and as a guy like th- this, this makes an intuitive sense because or I don't know, maybe, maybe you're bolder than I am, but, but, but when I was single, sometimes you might ask out, you you might not ask out your you, you know the woman that you like the most just because you're fearful she'll say no. So mm-hmm. sometimes you end up asking out your second choice or your third choice um, because you think there's a higher possibility of of that person saying yes. And you know, this is a big part of my advice to women is basically not to do what guys do because um, you know you, you want to at least have a chance with your first choice. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. So I, I want to make sure we're being fair to our, our friends at Hinge and Bumble. If, if, just, if, if Justin McLeod is listening or, or Whitney Wolf heard, obviously Bumble just went public. Let's, let's sort of acknowledge the counter argument for a moment, John. Are there benefits to these dating apps? Uh, you know, are, is there anything good that can come out of hundreds of millions of people swiping on these apps every day? So yes, like so. So despite everything we've we've um, we've just said, um, I, there actually are niche dating apps I like a lot, mm-hmm. and I and I do write about them in the book. And I also acknowledge. I mean, the, the the thing about writing a dating book right now is that we're in the middle of a pandemic, but books can't be written for one moment in time. I mean, I I mean, I talk about COVID dating in the book, but. Maybe I'm too much of an optimist, but I just don't believe that the world in the fall or four years from now will be exactly the same as it is right now. And I, and I do believe we'll be maybe not all the way back to normal, but, but closer to normalcy. So, um, but, but I do acknowledge that in a, in a COVID era, uh, yeah, obviously online dating may be the only dating some people are comfortable with. Some people probably don't want to even meet up in person. Um, regardless of whether you initially knew them in the in, in the real world or not, and and I I am completely on board with that. I understand that. I'm not encouraging anybody to to do anything that they're uncomfortable with. Um, also, th- there are plenty of reasons to use dating apps that. We already talked about this a bit, but I want, I think it's important to reiterate. There are good reasons to do, to use dating apps that have nothing to do with finding a soulmate. Mm. And, you know, if you're looking for a hookup or for a friend with benefits, or actually if you just move to Austin, Texas or to Washington, DC, and you don't, you want to meet friends in general, not even romantic friends. I actually think dating apps can be a really powerful way of building up a friend group. And I'm, I'm on board with that. 
uh, in terms of niche dating apps, um, I have a friend who has who has Crohn's disease, and you know people who have certain health problems. In this case, a digestive health problem. That, that you know, it may like I, I like I, I got a. I tell this story in the book. I got a um, a LinkedIn invitation uh, from a guy who runs uh, founded a dating app called Gutsy, mm-hmm. and. It's for people with irritable bowel syndrome or other digestive health problems, uh, singles who want to meet. And my initial reaction to after I Googled him or read his LinkedIn profile was I kind of chuckled to myself as though that's kind of funny. But like it was like 30 seconds before I was kind of ashamed for having such a a juvenile reaction to this because I I have this friends with Crohn's with Crohn's disease and there is always going to be this I have to tell you you know, thing that comes up, maybe not in the first date, but a second date, because, you know, it's, it's a part of her life. And the, I, I'm all in favor of any dating app. And I think that there are a lot of them that kind of specialize or, or like are focused on people with specific um, health problems or disabilities. And I, I believe anything that's going to provide a romantic on-ramp to people who have always struggled with dating in the real world, I am all in favor. And I, I endorse these kinds of dating apps. I talk about them in the book and I'm big fans of them. I'm with you. I, I think before COVID, I, I, I'm someone who, when speaking to friends and family, I'm always an advocate of like, oh, you, you see someone you like in a coffee shop or at work or at school, just say hi, you know, see where the conversation goes. Don't, you know, look up from your phone. Don't be, you know, don't, don't be swiping on Tinder when the love of your life could be staring at you from, from across the other side of the bar or the restaurant. But I will say, and this is exactly your point during COVID, what we're seeing is, you know, over the last year, there's no alternative to meeting people besides going online. And I have friends like, like you're mentioning who they meet, they, uh, uh, swipe with people on dating apps and they FaceTime for weeks. You know, they, they get to know each other for a month or two before they even meet up in person. So just to make sure we're being fair to dating apps, I do think that given the pandemic, given the state of the world now and for the foreseeable future, for a lot of people in their their 20s and 30s, this is really how they're meeting one another. So, so there is there is a, an advantage to that. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. The only thing I I would just reiterate is I do believe that you know that that question I asked of the Rollins College class, like, is there somebody who you already know and like from the real world who you've ever wondered about dating? Mm. Um, I ask this question all the time, and I would say um, 65, 70 percent of the time, the answer is yes. So it doesn't have to be talking to a stranger in a coffee shop. It could be a coworker. It could be that, that person you went to college with or, or your, you know, the, 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 the guy who was your realtor when you rented your last apartment. I mean, there, or the, the cop that you kind of talk with at the, at the coffee shop. I mean, there are all sorts of ways, people who we already know in the real world um, who, you know, who we wonder about dating and they should be on our dating radar the same way somebody on Tinder is. Mm. Date who you know, there's 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 something to that. Uh, so the last thing uh, th- that I want to ask you before we wrap up, uh, in the book, you, you sort of conclude with the offline dating challenge. Um, so to all those listening, you know, what what is the offline dating challenge and, and how does it work? So 
if if you're buying a dating book, presumably dating isn't going great for you. And like I'm 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 assuming two things. One that that if you buy a dating book, you probably are looking for a life partner. And I, but I know that that's not all singles. But but I do think if you're buying a dating book, that's your goal. Also, if you're buying a dating book, you've probably tried online dating. It probably hasn't been working out great for you. So my point of view is okay it's time to take a break from the dating apps uh, and let, let's see what happens. So the first step, you know, it's kind of like a, um, like a juice cleanse or something, except, except, you know, while a juice cleanse may improve your, you know, your immune system, this will improve your love life. So you start, you start with kind of going cold Turkey and um, deleting all the apps from your phone or your, or your laptop um, or your, your tablet, turning off all the email notifications. I mean, if this is going to work, you kind of have to take it seriously. Um, the next step, um, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but 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 the, the next couple steps steps basically involve either making a list of um, people you already know, kind of the Rollins College question, or talking to friends and family um, and saying, okay, is there somebody you know who you think I would click with, and then it kind of goes from there. But 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 the, the whole point—I I don't want to give away too much of the book. But the whole point—the whole point of it is um, allowing people, helping people um, connect with somebody who they. It's going to be it's going to be easier on a first date because you know if your best friend or your sister knows this guy, you're not worried he's actually an axe murderer. You're not worried he's going to, um, you know, uh, say, you know, yell at you if you're unwilling to have sex with them on the first date. Like like there people people behave better when there's accountability in the real world than with complete strangers whom they meet online. And, and I'm you know I'm. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll see I'm a little bit guilty of this myself. I mean, when I get into political arguments, I, I say things, you know, political things on Twitter that I would never say to somebody who was a friend of a friend who I met at a party. And I and I, I feel bad about this, but it's just the nature of the medium. The people don't behave as well with strangers online as they do in the real world. I mean, that's what they say when you when you when, before you fire off a tweet or send a message yep. or, or an email. Imagine the other person was sitting across from you right. at the table. Could you look them in the eye and say, you know, you're a, a this and that, and I hope you this and that. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think there's something there's something to the medium as well. Uh, John, listen, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, to all those listening, be sure to check out John's latest book, Make Your Move: The New Science of Dating and Why Women Are in Charge. So I, I read this book um, in a couple of hours. I couldn't put it down. Um, I, I love the data you provided, all the anecdotes, and we've mentioned some, but there's there's dozens and dozens more. Um, and I, I plan to check out your other book, Datanomics, uh, as well. I'm sure listeners want to know where they can go to follow you and to learn more about your work, John. So uh, on Twitter, um, and you can ignore my political tweets, uh, I'm, I'm uh, at John Berger one and my name is spelled oddly. It's J-O-N-B-I-R-G-E-R, then the number one. Um, uh, you can just search my name on Instagram. You'll find me. My website is johnberger.com. Um, and one other thing I always like to mention is um, uh 
I've teamed up with a company called Bookyaya. Um, it's kind of a platform that allows authors to connect with book clubs and other organizations. So if you have a book club that, that wants to read Make Your Move, um, you can either go to my website and you'll find the link there, or you can go to bookyaya.com. And there's a way that you can schedule me, book me to, to do kind of a, a virtual Q&A with your book club. That's amazing. I'm trying to start a book club with some of my uh, my law school friends. So well, you, well, you, they, should, you should definitely have them read Make Your Move. I, I will. I will certainly do that. <laughs> have, you, have you ever seen the movie Hitch with Will Smith? Uh, it's one of those cable movies I've like seen different parts of, but I've never actually seen it. Um, you know, beginning you to should, end. Uh, you, you should watch it because it's 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 you're sort of the modern day Hitch. I think that could be. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I don't, I'm not like I would say Will Smith is about a hundred times better looking than me. So <laughs> <laughs> remember, audio only. We're, we're only doing audio. For the, <laughs> okay, for the- I look exactly like Will Smith. Uh, <laughs> John Berger, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Ricky. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with John Berger. There were so many interesting uh, sort of tidbits and takeaways that uh, might have gotten lost uh, during our, our lengthy conversation. I want to make sure that that you guys, um, that these stay fresh in, in all of your minds. One of the things I found most surprising is the study from Pace University that, that we sort of glossed over in the interview. But the study from a few years ago found that on average – Offline relationships, these are real-world relationships, last four times longer than online ones. And couples who met offline were twice as likely to marry as couples who met through online dating. So think about it. Whether you, you meet someone in a coffee shop or a bookstore or a bar um, or you know the, the whole date who you know thing that, that John kept, kept going back to, compare that you know, those circumstances to people that meet on, on a Bumble or, or a Coffee Meets Bagel or, or a Hinge, the offline relationships are four times, last four times longer. So we're talking about a relationship that lasts three months to a relationship that lasts a year. Uh, that's a pretty significant disparity. I think there's there's something to that. I, I, I was also struck by the whole date, date who you know idea because I think, you know, John's vignette about asking a class of 30 people how many how many of you have someone in your life right now that you might be interested in dating every single person raises their hand you know think about the benefit of having having an entire foundation of friendship or even getting a fast forward the whole getting to know you phase which is it probably lasts like a month or two months think about you know if you're in a relationship and you're listening to this think about how how long it takes you when you're dating someone to learn everything about them from the trivial to what's their middle name or, you know, when's their parents' birthday to the important, like what's their love language or, you know, what's, uh, what's their favorite outfit. I'm not sure. You know, these things take a long time to learn and people who are in flourishing, who are in long-term flourishing relationships will tell you that, you know, you still learn new things about each other every day. If you meet someone when you're 25, you're 30 years old, you've you've lived an entire life before them. So there's just you're always learning, and so it's gonna take a long time to get caught up to to bring someone up to speed. So I think the whole benefit of being friends first or or dating someone that you already uh, that you've known for a while is you know you've already established all of that. So it's really no surprise that those relationships last um, a lot longer and. You know, the, the, the whole uh, great love debate, 
was interesting too that that experiment that we discussed where uh, men had to approach women and they didn't really know what to do. I, I wasn't surprised at all. I mean, to to women who are listening, think about how uncomfortable it is when a guy tries to talk to you in public. Um, how creepy unwanted attention is. Or on the other hand, think about maybe a guy who is sort of you know well intentioned and. You're attracted to him, but maybe he just doesn't know what to say. Maybe he doesn't have game, so to speak. And um, how you wish he sort of <laughs> knew what he was doing. He was more charming, more suave. You know, it's it's both ends of the spectrum. It's guys who you wish were a little better at it and guys who you wish didn't even bother, right? And for it's the same thing for men, you know? Like, think about how difficult it is to, to sort of initiate and approach women and how you got to be comfortable with rejection. You know, I think that's that's another principle that we kept coming back to in this conversation is having a, le- a level of comfort with rejection and vulnerability. Like the quote from Brene Brown, it's vulnerability to me, but strength to you. I hope I, I'm not getting that backwards. Vulnerability to me, but strength to you. Um... You know, when you put yourself out there, you say, hey, I like you. I want to, you know, I want to take you out for a socially distanced taco or, or you know, something like that. The other person is going to be, is probably going to be re- refreshed by your confidence. And hey, you know, if they say no, like at least you tried, right? At least you put yourself out there um, and, you know, you, you, you're more prepared for, for next time. And I so recommend that everyone picks up the book, if for no other reason than, than uh, checking out the offline dating challenges that, that John mentions, because um, we are coming out of the pandemic, right? Right. The, the NIH and CDC is talking about having everyone vaccinated by the summer, and we could be you know back to normal, back to business as usual in the next six to eight months. So that tells me that you know all of us are going to be a little rusty. Uh, anyone who's, who's single, anyone who's dating is going to be a little rusty. Once, you know, once the world opens back up and I, you know, I think now's a great time to sort of, uh, to, to sort of make sure you're, you're honing your interpersonal skills. That doesn't even, you know, j- just mean for dating, right? We talked about, uh, people moving to a new town or a new city and, you know, using a dating app, um, to, to make friends or, um, look at the opportunity to just meet new people. So it doesn't even have to be dating. I think all of us are going to, are going to, are going to be rusty and can use a refresher on just how to initiate conversation, how to be charming and, and funny and smooth and, and clever in person. Because anyone can, this is what I always say, anyone, if you pick up your cell phone and I have two hours to figure out what a, 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 clever responses. I can ask all of my friends. I can Google. I can go on Reddit. I can go on WikiHow and Quora. I can figure out the perfect response. What would Brad Pitt say? What would, what would, uh, what would Ryan Gosling say in this, in the rom-com version of this conversation? But in real life, you need to be able to come up with those responses like this, right? Like you're not going to be on a date with someone and you have to be able to say, hang on, can I just, before I respond to this, can I just pull out my phone? I have to, I have to see what my friends on Reddit advise me to say in response to this. You're not going to be able to, to wear an earpiece and you have John Hamm, like in the episode of Black Mirror, whispering, here's what you say in response to that. I mean, look, maybe that's, maybe that's the future. Maybe there is going to be a technology like that, but in reality, you're on your own. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, and so it would behoove you not to get better at it and practice at it and get more comfortable and more confident talking to people. And the last thing I'll say on this note, I know that I, I know I've been very critical of dating apps on this pod for a while, right? It's not, not just, uh, not just in this episode, but going back to the beginning and 
And I think that the, the reason why is because I'm just concerned with kind of along the lines of what we discussed, people are going to lose the ability to, you know, to just be real with one another, to just have conversations because like, because like I said, this talking through a screen isn't intimacy. It's not vulnerability. It's not genuine human connection. At least I don't think so. But having said that, um, I, I do I do sort of also recognize the important role that dating apps have played in uh, keeping people connected over the last year uh, during during COVID. And I'm sure, I'm sure that if you're listening to this, you can probably think of a friend or family member who has met the love of their life on a dating app um, during the pandemic, who, 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 who unexpectedly just found the right person at the right time. And then once the pandemic ends in a couple months, um, you know, they'll be in a, in a relationship and Hey, sometimes it works out, right? Like for all of the shitty stories that, that I share and that John shared <laughs> about people who, who have had disastrous dating app experiences, there are also success stories. Um, so I want to make sure that I'm being fair to all of the, the dating apps out there, but I do think, and I hope that once the pandemic ends, people will be swiping less and talking a little bit more. So I guess we'll see what happens. Um, in any event, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John Berger and you check out his book, Make Your Move. All right, so I got two episodes to preview with all of you. Next week is going to be a bonus episode. Have not had one in a while. So I'm going to be joined by a couple friends to to do the usual, just sort of shoot the shit, talk about what's on our minds, free form, unscripted, unfiltered, unedited. That's coming up next week. And following that, I'm going to be joined by Dr. B.J. Fogg, founder and director of the Stanford Behavior Design Lab and author of the best-selling book, Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. We're going to be talking about small-scale behavior change, so how to get better at flossing your teeth and large-scale behavior change. So tackling some of the biggest issues in society from screen time reduction on cell phones to the Climate Action Project, that is going to be a really interesting and thought-provoking conversation with Dr. BJ Fogg. So bonus episode next week, followed by the sit-down with BJ Fogg. That's coming up next on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore. Write to the pod via email, nervousabitspodcast.gmail.com. You can also search for full clips and episodes on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast. If you have not done so already, would really appreciate it if you took five seconds to rate and review the pod on Apple Podcasts. And remember, if you open up your Bumble app and you see that you have 250 matches, that might be your cue to close out of dating apps for a bit and go grab coffee with a coworker or that attractive guy or girl in your class. Take care and stay nervous.